Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass student Maura Murray drove from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At approximately 7.27 p.m., Maura spun out her 1996 Saturn on a hairpin turn on Route 112 in North Haverhill. There has never been a credible sighting of Maura since. Maura is 5 foot 7 inches tall. She weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information regarding Mora's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray family at Direct at gmail.com, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. This is Missing Mora Murray. Welcome back to Missing Maura Murray. I'm Tim here today with Lance being joined virtually through the internet. How's it going, Lance? It's going pretty well. How are you today, Tim? I'm doing as well as we can do today, I feel like. It's, uh, you know, just living that quarantine life. <laughs> living living the old quarantine life. Don't want to make a joke about it, but at this point, you know, a little humor sprinkled in isn't a bad thing. We all have to figure out a way to get through. And for the foreseeable future, we will be doing our shows remotely. And Lance, in this episode, we speak with our friend, someone who works with us for Private Investigations for the Missing. Her name is Michelle Kazuba. She's a prosecutor in the state of New York, and we learn a lot from her and lean on her a lot when we're not on the air. And she's here finally to join us on the air, and we have a really fascinating conversation about some of her work experience and a lot about Private Investigations for the Missing. Yeah, Michelle really hopped on board with private investigations for the missing. Her and Jillian and and Jennifer, these are the uh, volunteers that private investigations for the missing has. And Michelle was invited to join the board. She handles a lot of the submissions that come through, family members asking 
this organization to look into their missing loved one and she gets back to everybody we, we have a huge conversation with her we were able to probably break this up into two parts that's right yeah this is going to be a two-part interview and because she's so fascinating and has had such great firsthand experience. So this interview, we talk a little bit about some cold cases and some cases that she's brought to justice personally, which is really impressive. Yeah. And she says it so nonchalantly. You know, she she just kind of goes about her business and does her job. And really, uh, she's she used a great term. She's the assembly line of justice. And that's how she sees it. But uh, she could really and I don't use this word loosely. She she's a hero. You know, she's a modern day hero. And Lance, Michelle also writes the On This Date segment that we're about to roll into right now. Yeah, she puts together this information. This particular On This Date, March 26th, is a woman named Susan Carolyn Upham. She was 69 years old. She was last seen in the 2000 block of Airport Road South in Naples, Florida on March 26, 2018. So just two years ago. And Susan is 5'2", 150 pounds with blonde hair and blue eyes. She uses a wheelchair for mobility. And according to NamUs, per her family, Susan Upham is wheelchair disabled and may be missing or endangered. Susan may be traveling with a mail through Toronto to Tel Aviv, Israel. And you can get more information at NamUs.gov. And Susan's case is number 64710. There's very little detail about Susan's disappearance. And Tim, we have a number for anyone with more information, correct? Anyone with more information should contact the Collier County Sheriff's Office at 239-252-9300. Okay, everybody, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy part one of this interview with Michelle Casaba. You guys stay healthy out there. Hopefully we will be in the same room soon. Michelle Kazuba, welcome to Missing Maura Murray. How are you today? I'm good. Broadcasting, I guess, kind of live from my living room. All right. Oh, have you uh, self-quarantined? I am actually under the county quarantine. My job at the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office, they want 100% of us working from home. So it's actually been a, an unprecedented amount of people, all 100% of us um, working remotely right now. Well, that's good news. Might as well do that as much as you can. I know we're doing that over here. We're normally in Wormtown, but not right now, Michelle. And Tim, real quick, I think you pronounced her name wrong. I think it's pronounced uh, Kezube. Is that how you pronounce it, Michelle? That's the fancy way of pronouncing it. That's how I'm going to pronounce it from now on. I'll allow it. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, cool. Do you say that a lot in court? No, that's usually what the judge says. Oh. <laughs> I do want to say that as we're sitting here recording, I'm wearing my Justice for Alyssa t-shirt um, that I ordered from Sarah Turney um, to help support her in her search for her sister, Alyssa. And I know that the anniversary of Alyssa's disappearance is coming up in May. So I just wanted to uh, send a shout out to Sarah and her mission. Yeah, big shout out to Sarah and her mission. Her podcast is uh, Voices for Justice. Michelle, before we get to what you do, I want to catch up on a little bit of housekeeping because you have been working with us for the better part of the last year in volunteering with private investigations for the missing. My God, it's been that long. Yeah, we're actually coming up on the year where we uh, got together at the ASOC conference. Oh my goodness. Yes, that was um, yeah April of 2019. Yeah. 
Man, how much the world has changed since then. But Tim just mentioned uh, private investigations for the missing. So, uh, yeah, what's um, what's your status with uh, this wonderful nonprofit? So I actually had the absolute honor of being asked by Bruce Maitland to join the board of private investigations for the missing uh, along with you guys. And I'm definitely, I was speechless when Bruce first called me and it is such an honor to be working with him and working with you guys and the rest of the volunteers and board members um, pushing Bruce's mission forward. And, you know, not only looking for information and working with the private investigators and helping the private investigators as much as we can in Brianna's case, but also, you know, bringing these other cases that have been coming into us through email that Jen and other volunteers have been looking into and, you know, putting them forward through Missing Maura Murray and Crawlspace. And now when you say Jen, who are you referring to? Jen Amell, the wonderful Jen Amell from her hatch. That's right. Yes. Jen's been helping us a lot with some of these episodes, um, the submissions that come into the private investigations for the missing inbox, as well as you. You've been replying to them and sort of assembling some of these episodes with Jen and helping us out. Yeah. So just to give your listeners a little bit of an idea of how it works, um, we have the investigations for the missing Gmail address, which you can find on the website. Um, Anybody who has a family member, loved one, friend, you know, case that was from their hometown, et cetera, that they believe needs some kind of um, new new eyes on it, private investigator possibly, or just even some podcast or social media attention. Um, people will write in. I go through all the emails. I respond to everyone. And then we start, you know, putting them into a chart and figuring out, you know, which one Jen's going to take to start researching or some of our other friends of the show, like Naptime Nancy or our other volunteer, Jillian Kuzma. Um, you know, everyone kind of, you know, takes a story, looks into it. And, you know, a lot of them make it onto Crawl Space and Missing Mara Murray with you guys. Yeah. And that was the intent uh, from the beginning was that uh, missing Moore Murray and Crawl Space, now primarily Missing Moore Murray, would be the uh, vehicle for uh, raising awareness for these cases. I think something that surprised me and, and obviously surprised you is that uh, the amount of cases that came in so quick. Uh, yeah. and, and it was almost immediate that we needed help uh, volunteer. And it was almost immediate that we needed someone to volunteer their services. Like you said, Jen and Jillian have also volunteered. And, and you picked up the uh, the the gauntlet on uh, on answering these emails along with them and and sorting through all of them. And, and then all of that information is narrowed down and filtered. And then it comes to us and we broadcast it. And you also provide us with the on this date, which is a, a missing person relevant to the date that the podcast will be airing. So at the top of each episode, you you hear this uh, on the on this date, and we give uh, the statistics and a little bit of a background of a particular missing person that we received through private investigations for the missing. So on this date, I started it for our social media because Jillian and I have been working hard on the social media. We we recognize how how important social media is to getting these stories out there, to getting these stories to people. Um, you know, you put something up on on Twitter or or on Facebook, it starts a discussion, people start sharing. And, you know, these cases where there's little to no information 
from all different years, going back as far as the 1950s all the way to the present day. You know, you might have somebody who, and this has happened on some of these cases and some of the the postings that we've done, you know, there might be a family member that'll reach out and say, you know, thank you for for remembering my family member. Um, or you might have, you know, a friend reach out or someone who's just interested in an old case who will start a discussion. Part of the mission of private investigations for the missing has been to raise money to provide low or no cost private investigators to you know people who need it. The other part of the mission has has um, been developing rather quickly into bringing the stories of the missing that are lesser known um, for whatever reason that might be into the spotlight, you know, into the light through you know the podcast through social media. When we talk about reasons why some cases are are not as, for lack of a better word, popular than others. So when we're talking about the stories of the missing that are lesser known, we're talking about marginalized people or stories that don't get a lot of attention, not just because of the people, but also because of the places and the time period. And there are these stories that have a lot of detail, you know, when you go picking through the internet and, you know, reading um, these websites like the Charlie Project and Doe Network and NamUs. And you wonder, you know, wow, like, why, why isn't anybody talking about this person? This is a case that might be able to be solved. We take a look at those and, and try to use them not only for the On This Date series, um, but also for our blog and our Facebook page. I think that's really interesting. And I think one of the points uh, that you brought up is very relevant with uh, what's going on with citizen detectives and people who want to look into cases on their own. They sort of have a passion case. And this this is almost material for these types of people to uh, then go about uh, and start their investigation in a responsible manner. Is that is that one of the one of the reasons why the on this date is is uh, relevant, you think? Yes, that's definitely one of the reasons why I find it to be exceptionally relevant, because it's a starting off point. I would say to anybody who's listening, any podcasters, any researchers, you know, whether you're in college or in law school, whether you are a stay at home mom or dad, anybody who's just interested in this stuff, go back and just read each on this date. If you find a case, if you find a story that really grabs you, then just start researching it. And if you find anything, you know, send us a message, send, you know, send us a message through Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, send a message to our email. And, you know, we'll, we're more than happy to talk with you about it, you know, put something together that we can put on the social media as an update. And of course, you know, give any researchers credit. But one of the things that, you know, you said before was, you know, with citizen detectives and responsibility, Um, One of the things that we have to remember is the responsibility that you have with presenting these stories and that we have with presenting these stories and also the the ethics behind presenting these stories. You can't go out and accuse people publicly all over the place of kidnapping and or murdering people. Right. That would be that would be wrong. That would be irresponsible. Exceptionally irresponsible. Okay. the way that I've that I've looked at this the the entirety of this challenge of presenting this information on missing persons cases through social media and our blog is you know first we want to take a victim focused approach we want to make sure that we're focusing on the stories of the victim stories of the person who's missing less and not about the theories even though the theories are going to come in there it's a delicate balance um we try really hard to put 
the, the facts down that we're finding as we're researching these stories and keep it on, keep the focus on the missing person. Who was that person? Where did they live? What did they like? What would their family say about them? You know, that's that kind of thing. Taking these, taking these stories, we call them stories instead of cases because stories makes it sound more personal. Cases sounds like, you know, a file folder that's on my desk, yeah. right? Okay, Michelle. Well, uh, let's talk a little bit about your experience and your background and, uh, and what you do for a living. Okay. Yeah. Like what makes Michelle qualified to do what she does with private investigations for the missing? Well, now I feel on the spot. Um, so I am a, I am a prosecutor. I've been working in public service um, since 2006. I started out as a paralegal and then I became um, an assistant district attorney after graduating law school and passing the bar um, between 2010 and 2011. So I worked for the Queens County District Attorney's Office until last July when I accepted a position at the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office. And just for reference, Queens County is um, a couple miles outside of Manhattan. And where I work now, uh, Suffolk County is out on Long Island. Okay, very cool. And uh, a lot of your day is spent in court or uh, what do you do on a day-to-day basis? So right now I work in the Financial Investigations Bureau. Um, we do a lot of long-term investigations with surveillance, possibly wiretaps, you know, a lot of financially intensive cases mm-hmm. that also kind of creep into different areas. Like, you know, I have several cases going on with fraud in healthcare or, you know, fraud in different agencies, things like that. So do investigating financial crimes help you understand homicide cases in any way? They definitely do because so my my experience started in homicide investigations. So going back to when I worked in the Queens County District Attorney's office, our office had a unit and we worked alongside um, New York City Police Department detectives in the squads and the homicide bureaus um, to you know go to crime scenes assess the scene, work with the detectives side by side. I would write search warrants. I would write, you know, pen registers and trap and trace to track people's cell phones. I would do subpoenas. You know, we would put these cases together and get them ready to be presented to a grand jury and then to court. So a lot of the time that I spent um, during that time and also now um, has been in my office. So I'm not one of those like law and order attorneys that you see in court all the time. I do a lot of my lawyering from behind my desk. So it's a little bit more, I guess, I don't know, mental work. Yeah. And well, you have worked on interesting cases. What are some of the ones that you'd like to uh, highlight just in, you know, for this interview? Is there anything that stands out? I had a handful of homicide cases that I worked on in Queens that were definitely out of the ordinary. Um, One of the first arrests that I processed in 2012 going into 2013 was a, a woman who pushed an absolute stranger, just an innocent bystander, in front of the elevated seven subway train in Sunnyside, Queens. Yikes. And there was, we had, we had witnesses, you know, this person fled, but there was witnesses. About a week or so later, we were able to pick her up. She was under arrest. We put her in, she was in a lineup. She gave a confession. She made admissions. The gentleman that she pushed in front of the train um, was an Indian man, and she said that she pushed him in front of the train because she he she thought that he was Muslim, which just rocked everybody to their core. 
So she eventually underwent um, psychiatric testing. Turns out she was fit to stand trial, but she eventually took a plea. When you said that it uh, it really floored everybody and sort of rocked them, were you there when that happened, when she said this and and you saw their reaction and what what was your first thought? I wasn't there when she gave the kit when she made the admission. She was with the detectives, um, but she gave a written admission that was handed to me afterwards. Because one of the things that I would have to do as the as the assistant district attorney on the case is make sure that I properly serve notice of any statement or any admission that um, an individual is going to be arraigned has made. Um, so I read it afterwards, and you know, living and working in the New York City area, you know, especially you know given, you know, the time period, you know, the everyone's still coming off of that, you know, the anniversary of, of 9-11, you know, it doesn't matter what year it is, it's still really raw around here. Um, and then when she came out and said that, it was just, you just, I don't know, I can't even describe the feeling. It was like being punched in the stomach. I suppose on some level, you have to balance what you believe to be uh, ignorance or, you know, some sort of... um I guess deliberate uh, attack based on based on ignorance. You have to balance that with your with your job, right? Like your personal feelings and and then what you have to do for your for your work, right? Yeah, and you know what's interesting? You know, I've been to a ton of crime scenes right after somebody has been has been killed. I've been to you know scenes that have been cold for twenty plus years and everything in between. And to me, it was my job. So I didn't have any personal feelings at the time other than this is my job. This is the evidence we have to collect. This is the subpoena we have to write. This is the search warrant we have to do. You know, everything was was very, you know, it was a list and you had to get it done and you had to make sure every single part of that case was put together properly because that was my responsibility. And then after after leaving the the homicide investigations bureau to rotate through another area of my office at the time you know i look back and and reflect on it and like even now like years later i can now kind of pick apart and and analyze all of those those feelings and you know not just my own but just the the feelings that would just hang over each one of these cases and the sense of the sense of loss and remembering that there were family members and friends and people who were traumatized by these incidents, even though I had to kind of block that out at the time in order to do my job. Yeah, you're talking about emotional justice? Yeah, I like that. Oh, look at you guys, so smart. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Michelle, did you also work on the murder of the rapper Chinks? Uh, yes, this was, this was a long investigation, um, by, you know, outside of the cold case investigations I worked on. Um, so Chinks was a, he was a Queensborne rapper. His name is Lionel Pickens and he grew up in a far Rockaway in Queens County. Interestingly, you know, he had a friend who he used to rap with another guy named Raycon Elliott, who rapped under the name Stack Bundles, who was shot and killed inside of his apartment building in 2007. After Stack's homicide, Chink started, you know, getting a little bit more on the radar. He ended up rapping with French Montana's crew, and French Montana was a guy out of the Bronx. So this was, you know, you have you're crossing county lines, everybody's making music. You know, he's about he's up and coming. Um, he had, he's about to release an album within a couple weeks of his homicide. One of the interesting things about this case was that it happened about four or five blocks away from the courthouse. 
So Lionel Pickens, he had been out with friends that night. He went, he drove to a club in Brooklyn. He played a set. He, you know, went to a hookah lounge. It was closed. He was coming back. He had a friend in the car with him. And at the time there was this construction that was going on near the, the this library in, in Briarwood, Queens, which is right down the block from our courthouse. And he got boxed in by two cars Somebody jumped out of one of the cars and just fired into his into his Porsche. He managed to make the left-hand turn and came to a stop next to a Dunkin' Donuts on another block. And his passenger called 911. I think some bystanders called 911 too. Long story short, they brought him to the hospital and he passed away from gunshot wounds at around 4, 4.30 that morning. So I get called because I was on call that weekend so it's a Sunday morning, nice and early. So I'm standing like a couple blocks away by this by this uh by this Dunkin' Donuts, looking at this Porsche with just bullet holes in the window. And there is just no other evidence. And that you know, a topic that I talk about with people a lot is, you know, you think that a that a fresh homicide, you think that a new case is gonna be easy to solve. When it's a case that's based on, you know, little or no eyewitness testimony or and ballistics, it's actually a lot harder. So what we ended up having to do was reconstruct um, Lionel's entire night. So we went back and we collected surveillance video from every place that he went. And one of the detectives cut it together so we were able to follow his car and match up all the times. And then we matched that up with the um, phone pings of people whose numbers we kept seeing coming up in these areas. We were able to write an application to the court to dump all the cell towers in that area. And we picked out those numbers that kept coming up in all the places where Lionel Pickens was. And that's how we found the detective from Homicide that worked on it um, was amazing. He spent hours and days and nights working on this case. And eventually we were able to arrest five people for conspiracy and the murder of Lionel Pickens. Impressive. Yeah. How long did that take? Two years. He was almost, he was arrested almost two years to the day. And there was, you know, this is what, what happens when you work in a city and you have so many, you have so many things going on and a new case comes up and, you know, you talk about this a lot with, um, with cold cases and missing persons cases, right? You know, new, new homicides happen, unfortunately, new cases come up. There's, you know, you have a, you have a quarantine and a pandemic and all of a sudden, you know, the thing that you were working on gets pushed to the side. And the detective that I was working with, Vinny Santangelo, Vinny never gave up on this case, even when everybody said, you know, like, you're never going to solve it. You're never going to solve it. You know, I mean, nights, days, weekends, he'd be on the phone with me and he'd be like, I need subpoenas for all these phone numbers. I need to, I need to do this. We need a search warrant for this. And, you know, we got it done because of, you know, a lot of it was due to his tenacity. That's awesome. Well, you know, you mentioned one thing that is kind of an unknown for people on this side of the true crime podcast sphere. And you you mentioned like subpoenaing for cell phone ping records. We hear about that a lot. Um, Oh, the pings, the cell phone pings. Like I've never like looked through that info. What is that like? Oh, it's really daunting. It's a lot of letters and numbers, and sometimes it literally makes no sense. Um, but there's a lot of, um, like working with the NYPD. And I think that uh, the county that I work that I work with now does too. They have like tech units and they have detectives that are really, really good at this stuff. And they're able to, to look at these things, map them, decipher them. 
It's actually, it's, it's amazing. It's like, they're able to translate all those letters and numbers and latitude and longitude and everything into something that you can actually like visually see and understand. And for, for the prosecutor, it's important because you need to be able to, you know, possibly put that in front of a jury or a grand jury and say, here's the visual representation of all of these weird things that I'm saying. And, and it has to make sense to the jury, people who aren't um, technical in that way, too. So how do they do that for you? I can't I can't go really go into that too much because I don't know. How many oh, Tim, with the hard hitting questions that Michelle <laughs> Kazube cannot answer. Well, this interview is over. They don't call Tim, <laughs> Tim Woodward for nothing. <laughs> We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. Michelle, you also listed uh, an interesting case that you worked on, uh, something from Jamaica, Queens, called The Family Annihilator. What What is this case? This case was one of the most heartbreaking cases that I've ever had to work on. And I actually, I kind of tripped and fell into the investigation. Um, I wasn't supposed to be on call to be catching cases the the night that this happened. It was one of my colleagues that was actually on call, but she was starting trial right after Martin Luther King weekend, which was when this happened. I happened to be supervising the arraignment part um, in court when my colleague called and said, you know, I need to know if the judge is still there. We have to bring a search warrant in. And when I asked for what, I was then introduced to one of the most horrific stories I've ever heard. So this 28-year-old man who was living in an apartment in Jamaica, Queens, another another neighborhood in South Queens, he was living in this apartment with his, his wife, his one-year-old and two-year-old daughters, and aunt, uncle, and a young cousin were living there too, uh, which was not, um, you know, not an uncommon living arrangement, you know, especially for some of these bigger apartments around the area. So this guy believed that his wife was seeing another person, seeing another man, and he brutally stabbed her to death as well as the two children. So because I knew as much as I did about the case just from that conversation and my colleague who would have originally um, been working on the investigation was starting a trial, I ended up doing all the workup on the case after the search warrant. And one of the things that I did was going back to phone pings. I wrote an order which you know, for your listeners, when you hear about this stuff, about pinging phones and trap and trace and things like that, that all has to be done by court order. So it has to be by a judge. It has to be, you know, something that I write and present to the judge. The judge has to sign it. The judge has to find that I have probable cause 
um, in order to go and follow someone by their phone real time. So in this case, I had definitely had all the evidence to do that. I wrote the order. I ran into court. I actually pulled the judge out of his chambers <laughs> because I didn't want to. We needed this like right now. Um and the NYPD Technical Assistance Unit was able to start with his phone company following this guy across the country. And they were able to see where, when he turned his phone on, where he was. He thought he was clever. He would turn his phone on and off. But every time he turned it on, it pinged and we knew exactly where he was. When we get an order for a trap and trace, it also gives us the ability to send out a nationwide bolo, be on the lookout. So this nationwide bolo pops up on um, like a state trooper, I believe, in Texas, pops up on his on his computer um, with a description of the van that our murderer was driving. And lo and behold, this van drives past him. This is about 30 miles from the Mexican border. And this state trooper pulled over our murderer and placed him under arrest. That's pretty incredible. Uh is, when that happens, are you are you blown away right away? And I'm getting back to you separating your emotions from your jobs. If that happen, when that happens, are you just like impressed with the chain of command, like the workflow, or are you just like, holy shit, like I didn't, I never saw that coming. The first feeling is just like the most intense rush of relief. Like we we have this person. He's not going to get away. This is not going to be. Th- these crimes are not going to be unanswered for. And then and then afterwards, you know, when I think back on it, like I just think of like you said, like I just think of how amazing it was. How like every single piece came together. Because if it had been a few minutes before, a few minutes after, if the trooper hadn't read that bolo, if he just ignored it, like yeah, whatever, our murderer could have gone straight over the border into Mexico. We would have never found him again. Now, what you, what goes through your head? Uh, again, another one of these uh, mental experiment questions, I guess. I'm very interested when you're assigned to look into these pings and and I guess sort of triangulate things. Is it tedious, or do you know like this is going to be something that is instrumental in bringing someone to justice? So the first thing I'll say is, you know, investigations are a team sport. So. You know, everybody has everybody has a role. Everybody has their place on on the assembly line of justice. Um, you know, the detectives are at the scene. They gather the information. They gather the evidence. They call me. They give me that evidence and that information that I put into a court order and make sure we have probable cause. Then it goes to the judge, and the judge has to sign it. And then once the judge signs it, it goes to the technical assistance unit, and they're the guys that are doing the last part of that heavy lifting because they're the ones that are doing the actual real time 24 seven, you know, tracking of the phone pings. So it really is like everybody has like their, their part. And when all of the parts come together, it's amazing. And, you know, it's a little bit, it's a little bit of fate, a little bit of luck, but a lot, a lot of, of hard work on the, on the ends of the people who are involved in these cases. Michelle, I think you just hit on your title for your new podcast, which is The Assembly Line of Justice. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start rumors, Lance. <laughs> well, Michelle, tell us about these cold case investigations that you brought to arrest in Queens County. So I was fortunate that when I was working in homicide investigations and even after, um, that I had an amazing deputy bureau chief who's now retired, named Richard Schaefer. 
And Richard is to this day, one of the smartest legal minds I've ever met legal mind and investigative mind. And he had a, he had a really, really big interest in cold cases knowing that he had that interest and I had that interest, you know, we bonded very quickly and we worked on so many cases. I think we probably opened up maybe about somewhere between 20 and 30 different cold cases in Queens, which doesn't even scratch the surface of the amount of cold cases in Queens. Um, And we were able to bring two of them to, to an arrest and to a grand jury, which is, I'm not trying to compliment myself, but it is a phenomenal feat considering you know, how much we had to go through for each of these cases. You know, we see these news reports every day of cases being solved. You see stuff on Twitter and on social media. But what you have to remember is, like, especially from my experience, I can say this, you know, for every one that's solved, you have another hundred that that isn't, another hundred that's still open that doesn't have the evidence that a case that has been solved has, or, you know, ones that are just not being actively investigated because of lack of resources, lack of lack of interest, you know, just literally anything. Yeah, well, it's not like the cases solve themselves. You know, every case that you do see that a cold case that that had a, a resolution is from dogged police work, usually from several years. And you guys see it, I'm sure, with um, with your Sheila Shepard series, having spoken to the investigators, you know, up in Saratoga, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and they'll even go so far as to say that it's not like they don't have emotions when they realize that time is going on and, and it's getting further from the day of the crime and they might have had a lead that didn't pan out or several leads that didn't pan out and then new cases come up. Like these guys do feel, and when I say guys, I mean just in general, like anyone investigating professionally, they do feel for the most part, you know, a sense of like, they left something undone. Oh, yeah. I know that feeling. When I came back from from ASOC, between the time I came back from ASOC in April 2019 and the beginning of June, you know, that's when I decided to change careers and apply for a job out in Suffolk County with the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office. And that was, you know, for many reasons, it was a huge deal for me, you know, mainly because, you know, one, I don't like change. Two, um, I'd be going from the only thing that I had known for about 13 years into something completely new, uh, filled with people I didn't know. The excitement of it was also of, of starting something new was was tempered by my feeling that I was abandoning my cold cases, and it's still really taken me a lot of time to get over because I had, you know, there were three cases in particular that I was really really attached to. And that I've tried so hard on um, and I really wanted justice for these three young women. And I still have feelings of guilt for for leaving because I feel like I left them behind. I feel like I failed them. Yeah, but that's not uh, something that's uncommon, though, right? And feeling that you left them behind or, or feeling that that you failed them. I mean, it's almost like a universal balance, it seems to me. You're you're moving on into or one would move on into another uh another uh, aspect or another another department of justice right uh you 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 managed to work together with some of your peers to uh, you know bring two cold cases uh to conclusion and you, you know the same same side of that sentence or the different side of that sentence you said well for every one there's like 50 but still like you got to make a you have to make a difference somehow you got to start somewhere and i just feel like there's some some universal balance there yeah and I think that there's more room for 
emotion in cold case work and unsolved case investigations because there isn't that constant movement. You know, of the cases that I talked about before, you know, investigating the the subway pusher case and the family annihilator and you know Lionel Pickens murder there is this sense of of urgency of like we have to keep moving you have to keep moving and when when that's the case it's really easy to not dwell because you're i'm in constant motion i'm constantly having to think constantly having to to take the next step and think three steps ahead right with these older cases with these unsolved cases there's more time to really digest the files um, get to know the victims. Not only, you know, in some of these cases would I speak to the detectives, but I've spoken to friends, I've spoken to family members. It really starts to get, like, I understand that feeling when you talk to different investigators and they say that it became personal. Um, it is because you, re- you you get invested in the victims. Invested in the victims. I think you just came up with your uh, spinoff podcast name. <laughs> right. But you're right. Yeah. I mean, there's no way to talk around that. There's You have to have emotion in play, I feel. I feel like that is something that needs to be there to drive you. I think as I've matured through my career and my professional experiences, I've learned that there has to be a balance. You know, back when I first started in homicide, I, I was very much against, you know, it was just like all business all the time. No time for emotion. But now that, you know, I'm getting older, hopefully wiser, I'm, start- I'm starting to look at cold case work and unsolved case work more holistically and understanding that there's room for investigation, there's room for skepticism, and there's room for emotion. Michelle, can you tell us a little bit about the murder of Christine Daffenbach? You know, of one of the 20 to 30 investigations that I worked on, um, cold case investigations that I worked on, in Queens County. Um, One of them was the murder of Christine Diefenbach, who was a 14-year-old girl who was bludgeoned to death next to the Long Island Railroad tracks um, near her her home in Queens County in 1988. It was a Sunday morning. She had a little Sunday morning routine where she would go to the corner store to pick up a newspaper, you know, to get all the fun things that used to come in the newspaper. Um, Particularly, she was interested in the parade magazine because, you know, they often had articles and stuff about, you know, her favorite movie stars or singers and things like that. So she was was a very quiet, you know, kind of, kind of typical, you know, little nerdy 14 year old girl. And I got attached to the case because she reminded me a little bit of me at that age because, you know, I was that really quiet kid that always had my nose in a book. So to see what happened to her and learn more about her and learn more about her fate and her homicide, that case always stuck with me. And one of the first places that I read about Christine's case was in a book by Stacey Horn called The Restless Sleep. It's an excellent book that talks about the, you know, several different um, cold cases and the members of the cold case squad uh, in New York City that were investigating them at the time. So Christine's murder was um, heavily profiled in the book. And I didn't think about it for quite some time. Um, I read the book when I was in law school, didn't think about it for quite some time. And then I was in my office and I saw this dusty box on top of a filing cabinet and it had the name Diefenbach on it. And I walked by it a couple of times. I was like, wait a second, you know, this looks familiar. It looks familiar. One day the light bulb went on over my head and I was like, oh my God, that's Christine's case. Pulled 
the box down, inhaled 20-year-old dust, and started pulling the case apart and, you know, trying to see if we could solve it. If you want to learn more about um, Christine's case, I'm always happy to talk about her case. Um, Besides Stacey Horn's book, there's also a post on the Defrosting Cold Cases website, um, which is run by a wonderful woman named Alice. And I'm also talking about her her case on uh, Bill Huffman's new show, My Passion Case, in the upcoming future. When a person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization, Private Investigations for the Missing, because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter, Brianna, disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but... Feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles. From bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's Nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's K-N-I-X dot com.